You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is your murder mystery world tour. We are Flex and Herds, and we are still Herds in the future. Yes, we're speaking to you from a time capsule sent along the radio waves far in the future to the past. Yes. The time travel is, like, totally normal. We are covering The Caves of Steel <laughs> by Isaac Asimov, chapters 7 to 12 today. Mm. And Herds. Mm. A detective seems to have been caught up in the middle of something a bit beyond what we initially expected. A conspiracy, which I'm really yes. excited for. Oh, conspiracies. You know, <laughs> I see you dancing up and down. This is oh, great. I'm so He's excited. So like, as we know, there can be no mafioso Illuminati. Absolutely. At least but, according you know, to Van Dyne. I think we throw that out and we just go with <laughs> the, like, medievalist cult that exists in the shadows of the yeah, Caves yeah. of Steel. I think that the medievalist cult has become pretty obvious at this point. Our yeah. current selection has just ended with our protagonists, uh, Daniel Olivor and Lige Bailey, being chased across the strips yeah. of, you know, modern New York City. In what equates to an action sequence in this yes. novel. Which is incredibly weird because Asimov, I can tell just from reading the way that, that Asimov writes, the way that he like dictates mm. the the action and the flow of the scenes, yeah. that he's more used to writing dialogue and like distilling cerebral ideas down into a consumable format yeah. than he is at writing an action sequence. He, he has a very <laughs> particular style of descriptive language yeah. in that he describes the thing and vaguely what it does and some <laughs> of its properties, yeah. but there's no like visual quality to it. No. There's no cinematics no. to it, the- which means that you as a reader are left basically to fill it in yourself. Yeah. It's very strange. Like the way that he describes the strips is just that there are number strips that move up and down mm. and people sit on chairs up top. But like whether this is an open-aired carriage, I don't even know is if is is explicitly described. We assume like there's a bunch of assumptions yeah. that we're making as readers, which I actually really enjoy. As I say, I really like that we're left to interpret that detail. Yeah. Well, it's interesting in that the the strips are used more as a, a way to communicate status in a very granular way, this, this society yeah. and how it functions. And there's not a lot of time, you know, wasted on specific details. We're very much here to watch the flow of events unfold and get a, a kind of broad scope of this society that we've been we've been kind of plunged into. One that is for some reason on on both sides of the table and mm. this is to do with the divide between the spaces and the and the earth is obviously focused on cleanliness to this like weird degree yeah the spaces obviously when they set up their barrier and and we get to see this in in the opening chapter to this you know chapter 7 uh we we get to see the procedure that's involved in entering into space town and it's it's very high security, obviously. And then inside, we see that this isn't a one-sided thing, that uh, Daniil is actually very self-conscious of his uncleanliness. When he, like, spits out some apple seeds, because he doesn't know what apple is, so he's like, well, why are there seeds in my apple? He spits them out on the ground, he says, well, this place is probably going to be, you know, cordoned off yeah. for disease, <laughs> and, like, they're going to take the burners out and just destroy any trace of my bacteria. And that's probably not too far off the mark. <laughs> Yeah, surprisingly. And I mean, that's one of the other things that's nice about Lige Bailey is that in a world that's filled with all of these characters that are, you know, so medievalist and so opposed to everything Spacer, one of the things that makes Lige work as a protagonist is that he is still supportive and embracing of the Spacer's ideals while displaying his discomfort with them. Sure, sure. In kind of unique ways like that. Yeah, I mean, as I say, he does fit in the buddy cop tropes, which is Mm. super important. If we open this up and Daniil said, hi, I'm a robot, and Bailey pulled his blaster on him, this would be a very different story. Oh, it wouldn't be a buddy cop, right? And, um, I mean, 
it it does kind of not not with a blaster, admittedly, but it does kind of <laughs> get to that absurd confrontational point when Lige Bailey tries to accuse. Oh my Tra- goodness! <laughs> Are you referring to the greatest scene slash chapter oh, in this entire novel? It's amazing. It's so good. He just will not give up. Watching Elijah Bailey rant and rave and shout and like every time this highly acclaimed roboticist scientist man is like, well, let me tell you exactly why that's it. That yeah. is Mr. Bailey. And he's like, no, I ain't having none of this nonsense. Yeah, it's, Throw it out the window. It's fantastic. Basically, when we get to Spacetown, rather than going to the spaces and saying like, well, you know, I think I, I think I can maybe work <laughs> this out. He goes to them and he goes, it was you. It was you all along. It's so good. And it's, it's, oh, specifically, specifically, he says that the Daniil is actually not an android at all. Yep. And so the way that they resolve this, and they could have done this at any time. They really draw this out, yeah. which is why uh, it's beautiful to watch. The way that they solve this is that, is that he, first of all, like, well, Daniil, would you like to show us that you're a, you're an android and and they're like, well, what how's he gonna do that? And then his all his whole arm comes off. Yeah. His whole arm just falls off it's into fantastic. two pieces. It's in, so good. In a lot of conventional murder mysteries, such as our friend SS Van Dyne, yeah. who always a uh, link on the podcast if you want to check out his rule set, mm-hmm. says we should have no atmospheric dilly-dallyings, which <laughs> this would absolutely be, because we just spend so much time getting further and further into yeah, Lyra Bailey's argument. And you as the reader are either the kind of person who knows that he's about to make a fool of himself or Mm. are right alongside him. And either way, the beautiful, embarrassing climax where the (laughs) the commissioner who's over intercom just packs up laughing at him is fantastic because Lyas just starts freaking out like, oh God, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to be decommissioned. It's just like what happened to my father. And, you know, they foreshadowed all of the consequences of that early on. So it's, it's this beautiful, like both fear and catharsis of what's just happened and I love it. If there's always a, a thought in the back of the mind when you're reading a murder mystery that if something is being presented to you so clearly when you know you're not in the final chapters of the book, shout out to the event, the ending of chapter 12. Oh my goodness. Yeah. But like, if you're presented with this as, oh, this is it, this is the thing and it's presented as a really climactic moment, it's it's not it. This isn't the this isn't yep. what's going on, guys. It's not the food sack. It can't be because that simply said, because it's been presented, it can't be the answer. That said, I really do look forward to finding the novel that is the exception to that rule. For sure. Because I think that there's some really intelligent room that this story could have played if yeah. if Bailey was in fact right, and then we get into the consequences of that. But then of course it yeah. wouldn't have been as much of a yeah, mystery yeah. novel. Yeah. Let's move on to talk about uh Lige Bailey's family, because that's something sure. that we didn't quite get the chance to touch on last week. Sure. So Lige Bailey has a very strange family life going on in this book where his wife seems to discover the secret that his partner is a robot before anyone else in the city. It doesn't make any sense. Then they decide that it's unsafe for them to be around Lige Bailey's home, so they get an apartment hotel thing elsewhere, stay the night there, and then Lige's son rocks up in the... There's so much... What I wanted to bring up about this moment was the the excellent way that it uses Lige's own family and his own emotions as a foil for what's going on. Mm. Because I think one thing that tends to lack in the conventional murder mystery sense is stakes. Yes. Like, in a, in a lot of old murder mysteries, it's just, oh, can we stop the killer before they kill someone else? Yep. Uh, okay, or, you know... The, the onus is that we just want justice because justice is the right thing. Justice is good, guys. But here, Lige Bailey is given a fantastic motive in mm. that his family is basically on the chopping block, and he's been in the situation that his father was on the chopping block when he was yeah. a young boy. 
And I think particularly when we're looking at a science fiction novel set so far in the future, that's really important to connect us to what's actually going on in the story. Yeah, which is which is also interesting to talk about stakes in that we, we actually do have some very large stakes, so they're perhaps not as prominent. And those stakes are like war between the spaces and the earthers, right? Yeah. Like we have these two like opposite ends of bad things that will happen. They're both equally likely and both probable if Bailey and Daniil fail in their mission here. Well, yeah. One of the things we were talking about in the previous episode of the show was that this book does an excellent job of balancing themes and concepts. And I think that's another fantastic example of that, Mm -hmm. where there's the distant threat of the space's war that we never really understand how or why that would happen. But then we have the present threat of what will happen to his family. And those two consequences tie together really nicely and produce a brilliant motive for the detective without putting you out of your zone of understanding. Yes. There is a brilliant consistency to how it's doing that. Mm. I don't feel as though this serial release, chapters 7 to 12, was any weaker than the first six at how it carries it out. It's arguably stronger, mm. and I, I'm loving this novel. Either way, that's what we had to say on the story itself. It's time, Herds, to go to our guest. This is Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds, and we'll be back in just a second. This is Flex and Herds bringing you Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour. We're sitting down today with Sarah Bailey, Australian author of The Dark Lake and winner of the much sought after Ned Kelly Award for Best First Crime Novel and the Devitt Award for Best Debut Crime Book. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on your show. (laughs) Sarah, we all live busy lives, some busier than others. I understand you work as an advertising executive while also continuing the, the Gemma Woodstock series. How did you motivate yourself to finish your first book? It was quite challenging, I have to say. Um, Back then in 2016, I was working full-time in advertising Mm. and had written about half of the book and felt like it had more potential than anything else I'd ever attempted to write before. So I did at that time decide to leave that job, take some long service leave, which I was lucky enough to have. Um, And about two months of that, I I did manage to finish the draft. So uh, yeah, but I'm back working full-time now and I don't know. I think I enjoy the the juggle. It makes me write faster. No, I can imagine. <laughs> H- had you written a lot of a lot of previous first drafts before that, or a lot of other novels that you kind of like? Ah, this one isn't so good, and you kind of chucked it. Or I'd written a lot of short stories. Yeah, um, yeah. I think they're a lot more achievable, um, and it's nice being able to actually finish something and and sort of have that feeling of accomplishment. Mm. Um, but I had attempted another draft before the Dark Lake, and and I'd written about thirty thousand words before I sort of packed it in, which was pretty depressing. Um, so yeah, that's on my graveyard, laptop graveyard at the moment as a file. That's a lot of effort. <laughs> 30,000 words. That is way too much. I yeah. <laughs> I feel physically hurt when I have to throw out a 1,000 word essay, you know, back in high school. That's yeah. a lot. <laughs> I think as a writer, you get used to having to um, euthanize your own words. So um, yeah, I think every novel sort of has another 50,000 dead words in it. Um, but yeah, that was, that was sad because I do think that that book had a lot of potential. So I might return to it one day. We'll see. Hopefully. So you've been in Sydney for the Bad Crime Writers Festival and you were on a panel called Writing Crime in the Me Too Era. 
We've spoken in the past with uh, an academic here at Macquarie University, Catherine Lumbee, a little bit about this. And how do we go about challenging the status quo, particularly in a genre that's very much got the old boys club, you mm. know, forthright detective saving the maiden in trouble? Yeah, it's tricky. I think... Um I, my second book in particular, Into the Night, um, there's a subplot that's got quite a strong Me Too sort of um, theme to it. And I had quite a lot of people say, oh, how did you know that this was going to be in, this, in the zeitgeist when you wrote this book? And I, I said I, I didn't. It's just mm-hmm. that sexual assault and power in the workplace has happened forever. So I think it just felt like it was timely. But actually it was a story that I could have written 20 years ago as well as 20 years into the future. I think it's it's sort of an endless um, struggle that a lot of women particularly have faced. Um, I, I do think that crime can play a part in challenging um, the status quo and it can sort of, I guess, raise issues that are topical and challenge maybe new ways to tackle them. Mm. But at the same time, I write fiction. I'm not an essayist. I'm not a politician. And so I always try to sort of, I guess, write from the perspective of what feels right for my characters. And if it's a strong character who would feel comfortable in taking on someone who's um, sort of abused her in some way, then then I would do that. And if it's a character that for whatever reason doesn't feel like she could call that out, mm. um, which I think is very realistic in the real world, then I wouldn't have that person do that. So it is based on the character arc, I think, as opposed to a big political statement, or at yeah. least for me. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that crime is a genre that you're able to and other writers are able to express these kind of views on the world and these struggles because it's something that typically deals with the morbid, the grotesque, the things that we don't like. What is what is it about the genre that appeals to you in that regard? Oh, I just think it's it's the stakes are really high in crime. So, um, I mean, I read really pretty broadly. I love sort of literary fiction and um, all kinds of sort of commercial fiction. But I think with crime, you know, there's normally someone that's either died or in a really kind of bad situation. And so everything is sort of amplified. So um, straight away, you're kind of thinking about those big human themes, guilt, innocence, life, mm. death, um, right, wrong. And you can't kind of avoid it in crime. You have to tackle those themes. So... I just think they're the things that fascinate me from reading the news and talking to friends. And so I guess in writing crime fiction, I get to explore them in, a, in an interesting way. Yeah, you said that you you kind of unintentionally, you know, happened upon this, this zeitgeist of culture here. Uh, what's kind of the most surprising response you've gotten to writing about these issues? You know, a comment from a, a reader maybe that you, you weren't expecting, that sort of thing. Uh, probably for me, because my character, um, Detective Gemma Woodstock, is quite mm. complicated. So a mother and a detective, um, she's quite tough, but then she's also got a sort of vulnerable side too. Um, and in the first book, she's having an affair with her um, partner at work, another detective. Um, and I really was surprised at some of the emails in particular I get from people that are still really struggling with a female character that's got so many layers. Yeah. Um, and the judgment about her being a mother and still doing all of the things she does in her work is also something that I guess I perhaps thought we'd move past, mm. but I seemingly not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that your detective Gemma is is sometimes characterized as, as wild and unpredictable. How do you kind of balance that with the, the methodical process of solving a murder case? I think that a lot of people that are in careers that require them to be very measured and smart and um, tackle something at a certain pace are actually in their private lives quite hectic and complicated. Mm. So I suppose from a fictional perspective, my character Gemma is very good at her job, but 
incredibly chaotic in her personal life. And I, yeah. I, I don't think that's that unusual. Um, but people, I think, do find that a little bit unpalatable sometimes. Yeah. I mean, as we were speaking with uh, Slowy Gentil last week on the show, uh, there's this essence of, of heart that's so, you know, present in, in murder mysteries of – uh, of the modern age, and I think that by creating a character that's so so complex and has these, you know, they're, they're not necessarily a good person, but they're still doing their best, that sort of thing. I think that really injects that heart into the story. Yeah, I mean, I think like the James Bond kind of um, robot, I suppose, is definitely mm. on the out. I think in detective fiction, and you know, when you think about, I mean, I love the Bond movies. Don't get me wrong, but there's not a lot of depth going on really. Whereas I think these days, when you've got um, that kind of character, whether it's a detective or a police person or a lawyer right. or a journalist, they are hugely involved in their cases. They're really like struggling emotionally half the time with what they're doing. And um, yeah, you could never you could never accuse them of being sort of one dimensional. Yeah. They're very layered. Sarah, you're the winner of some prestigious awards. Uh, I'd love to know, how is the Ned Kelly's uh, this year? Any surprise winners? Uh, I don't think surprise winners. Um <laughs> I mean, it was a pretty amazing uh, short list and, and long list, really. Mm. Um, as I think it, it always is at the moment, we've got such incredible writers in Australia yeah. that it's, it's actually really daunting every time you sort of think about writing a book because you know you're up against just absolute sort of intelligent, legendary people who can pull out these incredible books every year. Um, but I was really um, fortunate to present the first fiction award to Devla McTiernan for mm. The Ruin. Um, which I loved when I read it last year. And so that was that was a really good highlight sort of, I guess, for me and I'm sure for her too. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the whole night um, really did showcase some incredible talent. And I think what was really interesting was um, the True Crime Award that they awarded at the start of the festival. Um, and Hedley Thomas took that home for the Teacher's Pet podcast, which um, I think just really shows how much that, channel has kind of grown over the past couple of years. I mean, we're on a podcast right now, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, yeah. but I think it's, it's, it's now just part of people's day-to-day lives. Mm. Podcasts are absolutely sort of, um, as much what they're consuming as the online news and people are often getting their news solely from podcasts. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a really fast, um, change in, in that sense. It is interesting coming from, uh, you know, a coming from a history of, you know, the detective club and the sort of idea that when you sit around and discuss murder mystery and talk about, you know, who wrote the best murder mystery? It's a group of friends sitting around like whining and dining and chatting with each other and changing to this kind of this full scale award ceremony. We've definitely come a long way in the crime fiction genre in that sense. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I'm really lucky, I feel, to be part of the crime fiction world and it sort of wasn't intentional. Um, my books just happened to have crimes in them. So mm. that was kind of how where I landed. But I really like the um, the community feeling that the crime fiction world no, has. It's really yeah. welcoming and I feel like I get to meet, you know, such interesting people all the time and such diverse people because crime now comes in a lot of different forms. There's sort of comic crime, there's the cosy mysteries, there's I guess the sort of horror, science fiction as you say. And yeah, it's just it's it's quite a broad church, um, and everyone's playing with the conventions, which I think is also you know it's really cool. Well, awesome, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been wonderful having you on, and thank you very much for your contributions to the Bad Writers Festival. Oh, you're it was absolutely fantastic. We are Flex and Herds. This is Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour, and we'll be back with Caves of Steel in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are Flex and Herds. This is your murder mystery world tour all the way from 3,000 
Our time capsule sent back to the distant past. Herds, it's your time to shine. We've arrived. The time capsule is here. Well, I will I will tell you that my culprit has not changed. Your culprit has still, not changed. You're still Vince Barrett still, as no, Julius no, Enderby. No, no, no. Throwing Vince out. I'm sorry. So your I culprit just... has changed. <laughs> The look, the body of the commissioner was the culprit from the beginning. Okay. I just have decided okay. this is the thing. This is the thing that I've decided. And we're gonna unpack this process. It's gonna be a wild ride. Yeah. There's all sorts of fun puzzles going on here, but I think that the end result is that Vince Barrett being in the body of the commissioner makes no sense uh for the solution of this story. I think that the commissioner and his broken glasses make a much more compelling answer given the themes of the uh -huh, novel. Uh -huh. And uh to just say it out there, I think that our Sammy is an accomplice. Now, yes. we are discussing chapters 7 to 12, and Herds, as you have just heard, is the one trying to solve this story. It's true. And last week on the show, I said to Herds that I think that Julius Enderby is so obviously connected to the crime that if he is the culprit and Herds can get the exact method as described in the book, mm -hmm. then he can have bonus points. I'm going to do my damnedest, my heckest. I'm going to do it. So he has to prove himself today. Now, I don't really think that there's much I can argue here. I don't okay. have much room to maneuver. According to the evidence we have, the only card that I have in my deck here is that Julius Enderby could not have killed a man. Yes, this is true. Which, <laughs> I mean, obviously is a huge problem I, for you, Herds. Can I tell you about my thought process here? How, let, let, okay, me, fine. Let, okay, let me finish first. Three card out. The, the only other thing I could do to say would be that you throwing Vince Barrett aside is foolish. If Vince Barrett was, in fact, the commissioner somehow through some mad science nonsense, yeah. he should have been mentioned in that investigation of the people part of the cult. Okay. He should have been mentioned there. Mm -hmm. I think that because he is not brought up as a member of the cult, he's not even slightly referenced by Daniil's investigation, I think that he's out of the picture. All Throw right, him out all the right. window okay. with the commissioner, okay? I'll tell you who is mentioned after their initial scene many many times, many or, times. or even three times there are two characters spring to mind i met, i was going to reference our sammy our sammy because there are three side characters that are introduced there's vince there's simpson and there's our sammy only one of those three characters is shown to show up correct, time and time correct. again and he's just creepy yeah now i want to let you know in any other murder mystery i would say that our sammy is in fact the killer there was a malfunction and mm -hmm, he, he mm -hmm. shot someone or whatever yep sounds reasonable but, but we know that robots cannot the kill. The laws of and robotics. Specifically in Aswell's novel, and I, I don't think that he's going to break that. I, I completely I, agree. I just think that's completely insane. That would insane. be utterly foul play. It would. It robots would. cannot harm humans, and that is not a theory. That is the law. There's the law. There's the law of robotics specifically laid down by Aswell, the person who wrote this book. Now, I do think, however, that our mm -hmm. can be an accomplice, and this is where we come to the commissioner's uh, situation here. Yep. I think that, because, because what's laid down as described through the process of getting into Spacetown and presumably out of Spacetown, uh, you're scrubbed down, you, a blood sample is taken from you, and uh, you're, you're scanned for power sources, which for an Android would just go ding, 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 ding. Yep. Um, and blasters will also show up. We know that because uh, Elijah tries to take his own blaster into the town. Now, I will say, one of the crack theories that I was trying to deal with to make Vince work mm -hmm. was that specifically because that DNA swab is taken effectively, the commissioner is said to be terrified of going back to space town. Yep. It's understandable if you've committed a murder there, but... Mm -hmm. I was going to say that he's specifically afraid of going there because if they swap his DNA, it'll be Vince's DNA and not the commissioner's DNA. Yeah. Now, 
The problem that I've kind of come up with is that that is completely insane. And because this is a buddy cop story, I don't think that the solution to this story can be something that could have been figured out by Daniil because okay. he's, you know, like he's a logical machine, but he has his weaknesses. And we have two scenes in which we kind of demonstrate that. All right. Um, All right. The first is when he tells Elijah Bailey that he's, you know, vulnerable to radiation. And the second is when he tells him that his son should just go get murdered. <laughs> Like, they're like, who do we send on this incredibly dangerous mission? And Elijah's like, I'll go. And then he says, but your son is less valuable. <laughs> All right. Well, Herds, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready okay, to take sure. my one card and say to you, this card will trump you. Okay. What is it? Tell me. The problem is, Herds, uh-huh. that no robot through inaction should ever allow a human to come to harm. Okay. Which means that our Sammy taking that blaster supposedly out allegedly out across the open plains of Earth... That is what I'm saying, yes. ...would be against the second law of robotics. And if you're arguing me the case, sir, that we cannot break the first, why would we be able to break the second? I mean, I I think that he didn't know it was to hurt someone. Where's Here's Rob? the problem Tell that me. I have, is that it is demonstrated that robots have a linear understanding of the law, and okay. our Sammy is a police robot, and thus would be given knowledge of the law. Sure, but right. he does. He is not imprinted Bear with, with justice. Light the deal is. Bear with me, Herds. Light the deal is. He would know the law, and thus would know that taking a blaster to Space Town was against that law. That entire scene with Doctor Garrigal. What purpose does it have, if not to prove that robots can do roundabout thinking enough to understand multiple trains of logic? When we get to the shopping scene. The riot at the store, where our Daniel Olivor draws a blaster and threatens civilians with his blaster. It is shown that he has enough logical thinking, and Dr. Garrigal is not surprised by this, notably not surprised by this, Mm -hmm. that he was able to work out that people would not attack him after drawing the blaster, would not cause a scene, he would not have to harm humans. I think that that scene with Dr. Garrigal is trying to show you herds that our Sammy would have had the same loop of logic with getting the blaster over to Spacetown, where he would know it was against the law, and he would know that through his inaction in bringing that blaster there under orders, it could lead to harm. So here's the thing. Daniil, on the other hand, does not need orders at all in order to draw a blaster and point it at civilians. Mm -hmm. He is notably more intelligent, and I think that the lack of surprise that is shown by, by the good doctor is because this is space attack. This is a robot with an advanced, you know, positronic brain. Um, and even though the the laws of, you know, not doing harm to humans or through an action allowing them to come to harm is built into all robots, they can still be modified. They can be changed. They can be, you know, given the capacity for justice. I would say that justice and the law are two very different concepts as stated in that so. same scene. I suppose as so. As stated in that same scene. I suppose so. The other problem that I have here, Herds, is that we are told that supposedly the spaces have footage of Julius Enderby at the crime scene. And if we had footage of Julius Enderby at the crime scene, why would we not have footage of the crime if he was the one to commit it? Seems like there's a big hole there, a big glaring blaster-shaped hole in your thinking. I'm not sure about the footage thing. I, I am not entirely sure how to rectify that. I think the thing that interests me most about your solution today, mm. Herds, is that this story supposedly was an accomplishment for Isaac Asimov in the sense that all of his solutions were things that were only possible with, you know, mm-hmm. the modern futuristic technology. But sure. all of the things you've suggested to me are not futuristic methods. 
Well, but they're overcoming these uh, these problems that the spaces have put in. The reason why it's a mystery is because the spaces don't think that any of these things are possible. That's that's my that's my thinking on the topic. I I don't necessarily agree because I think that it is our Daniel Oliver that comes up with both the suggestion that it was Julius Enderby who likely did it, sure. and that it was a robot who but, likely crossed the field. But there are specific points of reasoning that are made, mm-hmm. such as the brain scan, such as the uh, the assertion that um, you know nothing, nothing, no power sources can make it through the front gate that are being challenged. And I don't think that these things would have been challenged or, or will be resolved without the help of Elijah Bailey. Well, Herds, I've really enjoyed hearing your solution today. I'm glad. I'm glad. This has been a long, fascinating discussion. That's good. I'm ready to maybe give you points. I hope so. Do you want me to recap it? Just so we're I entirely hope, clear? I hope you've earned them. I don't think we need to recap okay, it. Good. I think that it, you know, it was Julius Enderby. He had our semi cross yes. the field yes. and he tried to shoot a robot and shot a man instead. That is it. Because he broke his stupid glasses. Yeah. Like an idiot. I think that that is a brilliantly elegant solution. I think that you have adequately used the foreshadowing. The question is, Herds. Yes. Is this enough for you to get your bonus points? I don't know. That I remains so. to be seen. I hope so. That remains to be seen. Up on the podcast after part three of The Caves of Steel will be our extended cut, which we put out once for every book, where you can hear Herd's full reasoning on this subject right down to the nitty-gritty detail. But you know what, Herd's? It's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed seeing you try to solve The Caves of Steel. We will be back next week with chapters 13 to the end of The Caves of Steel by Isaac Asimov. Will Julius Enderby be arrested for a crime he did not commit? And thrown out a window? Will Vince Barrett finally be caught from his criminal den down in the yeast farms? And thrown out a window? And thrown out a window? Listen, man, I'm, <laughs> I'm really hoping it happens too. I, I really so. want it to happen. I don't, I don't know if it will, but I want it to. Listen, the best ending for this book to me would be that Lige Bailey says something stupid look, and Daniel oh just goes out the window with you. <laughs> look. I know it's not possible by the laws of the story, but if R. Sammy throws the commissioner out the window, Darth Vader style, the ultimate ending. Somebody write that. Make that. Produce that. I'll pay for it. Let's go. (laughs) I won't actually. This has been Death of the Reader on 2SCR. Thank you very much for joining us, and we will see you next week. 